Hello. This is the podcast Think Rather of Zebra. I'm Jay Staley, and here's the story on today's podcast. About a decade ago, I was approached by Dr. Ruby Payne and asked to put together a collection of stories that paralleled the work that she had created and published in the book A Framework for Understanding Poverty. The purpose of Framework, which has now sold more than a million copies, was to help educators focus on the resources that students bring to the educational setting and how those resources or lack of resources impact the success of students as they navigate the educational system. Dating clear back to the late 60s and President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty, the data about schools is quite clear. There is a gap in success between children from middle class and children from poverty. It is a gap that has continued into the 21st century and triggered such legislation as No Child Left Behind. What is most troubling about this gap in the age of information, when cities, states, and nations are trying to create human capital, is that the success of a people is based on the educational success of all those people. In a framework for understanding poverty, it was Dr. Payne's hope to help people think differently about economic class and how it impacts education. When she approached me with this project, I asked her, what kind of stories are you looking for? And she replied, I want teaching tales. Stories enter the brain in a different way than factual material. They are processed and stored in a different place in the brain and can be retained and retrieved at times and in ways that factual material cannot. I thought immediately of this Zen tale, And it is from this tale that we take the name of the story collection and the title of this podcast. A student had studied with the master for a long time and felt that he was finally ready to leave his teacher and go out into the world. I am sorry, the teacher told him with a gentle smile, but you are not quite ready, for you have yet to learn the meaning of story. The student looked so disappointed that his teacher added, When you go out to meet the world, you must be armed with the understanding that stories can teach us a new way of seeing things, of thinking about those things, and of responding to them. Now, because he could see that his students still did not understand, the wise teacher reached out to help once again. When you hear hoofbeats, he asked, what comes to mind? Why, a horse, certainly, replied the student with confidence. That is because you have become conditioned, and in that conditioning, you have fallen asleep. When you hear hoofbeats, the teacher prodded, think rather of zebra. In the eye of the student, a glimmer of understanding shone. Turning to the teacher, he said, tell me a story. What follows that story from the introduction of Think Rather of Zebra, dealing with aspects of poverty through story, is a collection of 42 more tales gathered and adapted to directly connect with Dr. Payne's framework. It is through this collection of stories, followed by the questions Dr. Payne has written to help us think more deeply about the content, that I will try to get you to think differently about schools and how they approach under-resourced learners. Whenever I relate my storytelling work 
to Dr. Payne's work on poverty, I'm reminded of, of the story of the man who survived the Johnstown flood. The Little Colnema River and the Stony Creek River merge at the western edge of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to form the Colnema River. On the last day of May in 1889, after several days of rain, the South Fork Dam, 14 miles north of the town, on the Little Colnema River, gave way, and a wall of water came crashing down the valley and inundated the city of Johnstown. 2,209 people perished in the flood. There was at least one man who survived, and this is his story. Following the disaster, there were a few survivors who moved away and others who managed to pick up the pieces and go on with their lives. But this man, this man could not get the event out of his mind. Every time he met up with someone, he had to tell them the story of how he survived the Johnstown flood. If he saw someone in the hardware store, he'd ask, Have I told you the story of how I survived the Johnstown flood? And without waiting for an answer, he would launch into the tale. When he saw someone at church, he would start in, Let me tell you the story about the day I survived the Johnstown flood. After a while, people grew weary. If they saw him coming toward them on the sidewalk, they would cross the street so as to avoid yet another telling of the tale. Now, old age eventually did to our friend what the Johnstown flood did not. One day he died and went to heaven. And when he arrived, St. Peter informed him that on the first day in heaven, everyone can have a wish granted. The man smiled with anticipation. I, I can have anything? Why not, said St. Peter? It's heaven, isn't it? To this, the man replied, Can you gather all the heavenly hosts together so I can tell them the story of how I survived the Johnstown flood? Oh, I can do that, St. Peter replied. But I need to warn you, when you begin your story, Noah will be in the audience. So, at the risk of being bold, I present Dr. Payne's work through this collection of stories. Each chapter of the book deals with a new topic. As noted previously, at the end of each chapter in the book, Dr. Payne has included a series of questions that helps the reader focus on the concepts. And during the podcast, we will be looking at those questions as the stories unfold. If you wish to purchase a copy of either book, you can do so at the AHA Process website, www.ahaprocess.com. Dr. Payne's book is Framework for Understanding Poverty, and my book is Think Rather of Zebra, Dealing with Aspects of Poverty Through Story. I want to leave you with this old tale adapted by my storytelling colleague, Jim May. The wise man had slept the night at the edge of the village. He awakened at his usual time just before sunrise. As a warm wind moved over the land, gathering faint aromas that sweetened the air, a small garden here, a tiny blossom there, the pungent whisper memory of a dying waterhole. He sat up, looked to the east where the sky was beginning to lighten, and began his morning devotions, starting with prayer as he had done almost every day of his life. 
It was during these prayers that the sound of hurried footsteps greeted his ears, and then a voice behind him. Master, master, where is it? The old man turned slowly, and there standing behind him was a young peasant, dressed in rags. The young man was excited, his chest heaving up and down, his eyes intense and piercing. The old man studied the young man for a long moment. What is it that you ask of me? The young man bowed slightly to his elder, seeming to calm himself a bit, and spoke. I had a dream last night, and in my dream I came to the edge of the village and met a holy man, and now here you are. In my dream that holy man gave me a precious jewel. Ah, replied the old man as he reached into a tattered cloth bag and retrieved a ruby the size of a fist. You must mean this. I, I found it, I don't remember where, but I have no use for it. Here, you may have it. With that, the old man handed the ruby to the young peasant, a man whose hand had never held more than two copper coins at one time. The young man took the ruby. He could not believe his good fortune. He held it up to the sun, his face awash in red shadow. He walked home slowly, holding the jewel in his hand, his arm outstretched in front of him. He could not take his eyes off of it. Returning to his small cottage, he placed the ruby on the table, pulled up the one chair that he owned, and sat all day admiring his treasure. He would turn the stone this way and that, slowly, reverently stroking this great gift over and over as the hours passed. That night, the young man had difficulty sleeping. Early in the morning, he awoke, took the ruby, and returned to the edge of the village in search of the old man. When his prayers were once again interrupted, the holy man asked if there was a problem. Handing the ruby back to the holy man, the young peasant said, I do not want this. I want what you know that made it so easy for you to give it away. Just like that young man, you have tuned into this podcast because you are searching for answers to big questions, and I'm hoping to help us look at the challenge of educators as they try to close the academic success gap. Perhaps we can think differently and view the challenge with new eyes. I invite you to delve into the power of story. See the world with a different stripe. Think rather of zebra. Welcome to part two in the podcast series, Think Rather of Zebra. I'm Jay Staley, and here's the story on today's podcast. The topic today is the power of story. In modern society, we sometimes mistake the flashy or the violent for true power. This East African tale, which was adapted for the book Think Rather of Zebra, moves us into today's theme. Way back before there were buildings and lots of people here, when it was still mostly forest, some of the animals were bored one day and decided to have a contest to see who was the strongest. Buffalo, bobcat, deer, and crawfish gathered in a clearing at the top of a big hill that overlooked the bay. They were ready to get started on the contest, except for the fact that man, who was fairly new to the area and had wanted a chance to compete, had not yet arrived. Before long, they heard man bustling through the woods. They always heard man before he arrived. Just as the man got to the clearing, buffalo saw him stop and lean over to put something in the thicket. 
Then man came into the clearing and greeted the animals. Buffalo, who had made himself in charge of the strength contest, explained the rules and told Crawfish to begin. Quick as could be, the crawfish slid to the center of the clearing and began to dig a huge mud chimney. It grew and it grew up until it reached Buffalo's snout. And at that moment, crawfish appeared at the top of the chimney, grabbed Buffalo by the nose with his big red claw. Buffalo snorted and shook his head but couldn't free himself of the little crustacean. Finally, crawfish released the buffalo and dropped back into his chimney. Raising both claws into the air, crawfish proclaimed loudly, Strength! The other animals were amazed. Wow, said Bobcat, that's a pretty impressive display of strength. Deer took a step back, not wanting to stick his nose into the conversation. Buffalo snorted, rubbed his snout in the mud, and nodded for Bobcat to show his strength. With that, Bobcat growled and lunged forward, knocking down Crawfish's mud chimney with one swipe of his paw. Then he bared his claws and began to dig. Dirt flew in every direction. The animals turned their heads away and covered their eyes. When the rain of earth ended, they turned back to the center of the clearing to find Bobcat missing in a huge hole where he had been. They moved forward to look down into the hole. Bobcat let out a scream and sprung from the bottom of the hole up, right up into the clearing, landing softly and deftly between buffalo and man. Bobcat licked the back of his paw, smiled, and purred loudly, Strength! I guess so, Crawfish agreed, unable to find even a remnant of the mud chimney he had built. Buffalo grunted. Remarkable display, Bobcat. Then he turned and nodded at Deer. Deer shot out of the clearing and down the long hill, splashing her feet in the bay. Then she raced back up the long hill, all in less than thirty seconds. She stood once more where she had begun, the muscles in her flanks quivering. The animals were breathless with envy and respect at the power and strength Deer showed with her graceful leaps. What a lovely display of strength, Buffalo commented. Now it's my turn. Buffalo turned and leaned his head against a tree. He pressed his full weight against the trunk, and with a splintering crash, the first tree gave way, and it crashed into a second tree, and that went into the next and the next. Buffalo raised his head and bellowed, shaking the splinters from his beard, he stood proudly over the stack of new lumber. Now that's strength, he snorted. Bobcat agreed wholeheartedly. Crawfish clicked his claws. You are definitely the champ. Well, what about me? Do I get my chance? The animals turned to man. Well, sure, of course, if you think that you are stronger than buffalo, you can get your chance, said Crawfish, speaking for the others. Man backed up to the edge of the clearing and came running across the middle. He did two flips and a back somersault, landing in a puff of dust, hands above his head. Strength! he shouted. Well, that was impressive to look at, Buffalo replied, and was certainly a grand display of flexibility and dexterity. But I wouldn't call it strength. Very nice, Deer added encouragingly. But I agree with Buffalo. I would hardly call that strength. You don't think so? Man replied, anger in his voice. Well, watch this! With that, Man raced across the clearing, quickly climbed to the top of a tree, grabbed a pine cone, and flung it over the animals' heads. It struck a bunch of wild grapes hanging from a second tree, which showered down on the animals beneath. He scrambled back down the tree and stood before them, rubbing his hands together. Strength! he proclaimed. The animals finished eating the grapes and smacked their lips in appreciation. 
Buffalo responded, that was a nice gift, man, and a terrific display of both agility and accuracy. But I wouldn't call that strength. Would any of you call that strength? Buffalo asked, looking at the other animals. It was fun to watch, Bobcat said, but I wouldn't call it strength. Before any of the other animals could respond, man shouted in anger. Oh, yeah? You don't call that strength? Well, let's see what you call this. Man ran to the edge of the clearing, where he had hidden something in the thicket. He reached in and pulled out a gun. Turning, he aimed the gun at Buffalo and pulled the trigger. Kabloom! Buffalo fell to the ground with a thud, a cloud of dust billowing into the air. As the dust settled, man thrust the gun above his head and shouted, Strength! He waited for the other animals to respond. Looking around, he saw that the animals had disappeared. Later in the day, deep in the woods, deer and bobcat and crawfish met and whispered together. What was that? Deer asked. Was that strength? Crawfish wondered. No, bobcat replied. That was not strength. That was death. With this understanding, the animals slid off into the woods and never came out to talk with man again. Strength. It's a powerful story and a story that I love to share. Man has always had a need to share his story. Even before the development of language, ancient man told his story with paintings and etchings on the walls of caves. As language developed, man began to share his tales around the fire. Prior to the invention of the alphabet and in civilizations that did not have the means to share written word, stories were the vessels that assured the continuation of those cultures from one generation to the next. Stories are stored in the subconscious and can be recalled through triggers when information from the long-term memory evades us. The Greek culture was maintained through the oral tradition in Greek myths. The more remarkable and vivid, the more memorable. Thus it was Medusa with her hair made of snakes and Kerberos, the three-headed dog who guarded the gates of Hades, that became the characters that secured the culture of Greece over time. Much of the recorded words of Jesus, written from memory after his untimely death and a reasonable wait for his promised return, are in the form of parables, stories with a message. In fact, the world's major religions, all founded prior to the invention of the movable printing press, are rich with stories. The strength of the story is that it is learner-friendly. It is compatible with the human brain. The narrative framework is one of the key basics of human thought and the brain's effort to decipher meaning in our world. In her book, The Framework for Understanding Poverty, Dr. Ruby Payne talks about story structure and the importance of creating neural pathways around that structure to help us process our world. The story framework is a mental model important to learning. The basic narrative framework in Western thought is that stories are centered on plot, they unfold in chronological order with a beginning, a middle, and an end. The characters in a described setting are presented with a problem and strive to solve that problem. As each of us tell our own story, this structure not only becomes small chapters in our lives, but also the foundation for our thinking. It is our literature, our arts, our history, the stories of our scientific discoveries. Poet laureate Billy Collins in his poem, Aristotle, tries to help the reader come to terms with this idea. 
In the beginning, he says, is the creation of light, the first word on an empty page, the letter A, a woman ironing on a bare stage. The middle, Collins writes, is where nothing is simple anymore. It is the sticky part where the plot congeals, where someone hides a letter under a pillow, where the aria rises to a pitch, a song of betrayal salted with revenge. And in the end, well, Collins tells us, it's the car running out of road, the river losing its name in the ocean, the last elephant in the parade. Formal story structure helps us make sense of the world. It is why we are encouraged to read to our children from the moment they arrive on this earth over and over until the neural pathways are developed. It is this structure that helps us as human beings focus our thoughts and plan our lives. A hunter dug a pit on the edge of the woods, hoping to trap an animal for his dinner. He carefully covered the pit with sticks and leaves and decided to come back later in the day to see if it was disturbed. Around mid-morning, Fox was making his rounds in that part of the woods. He ran along the path, looking left and right, checking things out. He was wondering if Raccoon was sleeping. He was hoping Rabbit didn't hear him coming. He was keeping one eye out for Field Mouse and looking up into the treetops imagining how pleasant it would be if Squirrel missed a jump and landed right in front of him on the path. Fox wasn't paying attention to where he was going, and he ran right into the hunter's trap. Fox found himself at the bottom of the pit, looking up at the clear blue sky through a hole in the sticks and the leaves. Do you think that Fox was worried? Not a chance. Fox had a million ideas how to get out of that pit. In fact, to generate more ideas, he began to run around the bottom of the pit in circles, all the while thinking, I have a million ideas, I have a million ideas, I have a million ideas for getting out of this trouble. He ran and ran until a cloud of dust began to rise from the bottom of the pit. A crane swooping above the pit flew into the cloud of dust and was blinded. She set herself down on the forest floor and became entangled in some sticks and leaves. Struggling to free herself, she fell through the sticks and into the bottom of the hunter's trap. When her eyes grew accustomed to the light, she was dismayed and frightened to find herself at the bottom of a pit with Fox. Fox took one look at Crane and began to laugh. You stupid, frightened bird. Now you're in big trouble. The hunter will find you here and have you for dinner. Why are you so happy? she asked. You're in the same predicament. Well, yes, Fox replied, but I have a million ideas how I can get out of this pit. But you, look at you. You're too frightened to even think. The crane did look scared and responded in a quavering voice. I, I think I might have one idea. One idea? The fox mocked. Do you think you can get out of this pit with just one idea? I have a million ideas for getting out. Fox began to run in circles again, all the while chanting, I have a million ideas. I have a million ideas. I have a million ideas for getting out of this pit. In the center of Fox's circle, Crane stood still. I have one idea, she said. I have one idea. All afternoon, Fox ran and chanted, I have a million ideas. I have a million ideas. All afternoon, Crane stood still in the middle of the pit. I have one idea she said. As night began to fall, Fox ran faster and chanted louder, so he didn't hear the approach of the hunter. 
even if he had heard the hunter coming, even if he had realized the sticks and leaves were being pulled away from the top of the pit, Fox would not have been afraid. He had a million ideas how he could get out of this trouble. The hunter looked down into his trap and smiled. Aha, he exclaimed. Two for the price of one, and my friend the fox has already done half my work for me. With that, Fox stopped running and looked at the still body of the crane lying in the center of the pit. Foolish bird, he thought. She has died of fright at the arrival of the hunter. Now she won't even be able to use her one idea. But I'm not afraid. I still have a million ideas. The hunter reached down into the bottom of the trap and hauled out the crane with one hand. He dropped the crane on the forest floor and reached for his gun to take care of the fox. In that moment, the hunter heard a great flapping of wings. Turning back, he saw the crane fly away over the treetops. That night, as the hunter ate fox stew and told his wife about the lovely fox skin hat he planned to make for her, he shook his head in admiration at the single clever idea the crane used to escape his dinner pot. In researching the stories for this book, I found over and over, in essence, the identical story in more than one culture and the existence of those stories with no link from culture to culture. There are over 500 versions of Cinderella, a story found in native cultures as well as Western and Eastern cultures. It functions as other tales in describing a human dilemma that has no cultural bounds. The power of story provides an outlet for human emotion, the telling of our tales. What other amazing powers are delivered in the telling of stories? Well, stories have the amazing power to build relationships, something that the research tells us is a key to learning. Think about the process of story sharing and remember those people in your life who told you stories. The act of sharing stories is an act of giving and receiving. Long after a gift is given, the story of that gift and the people who gave the gift is remembered. I've often told substitute teachers that the most powerful tool in their repertoire is one or two well-told stories. The problem with subbing is that the substitute teacher walks in cold and has no previous relationship built with the class. My advice to subs, walk into the class, pick up the teacher's lesson plans, look at the kids and say, oh my Gosh, look at all the work that your teacher has left for you today. Before we get started, you guys want to hear a story? And tell that one story. Then tell the kids, okay, if we work really hard today, at the end of the day, I'll tell you another story. I've had this same type of experience with police officers who have stopped me for a violation. If they let me tell my story, it's more difficult for, you, for them to write the ticket. It's easier to write the ticket if there's no human connection made with the person being ticketed. Stories also invite the telling of more tales, which results in the building of community one story at a time. I have a tale I tell about a large family who, in the midst of the holiday madness and rush, accidentally leave behind one of their children in a bathroom at a gas station. Eventually, they realize their mistake and return to retrieve their lost child. Inevitably, when I tell that story, people come up to me after the performance and want to share their family's version of the child left behind. Stories also have the power to link cultures, emphasizing our common traits and paths and challenges. 
It is through this process that we better understand the world that we live in. Carol Birch, a Connecticut storyteller, identifies three types of storytelling. Informal telling, that which we do when we retell the plot of a movie to a friend or describe something unusual that's happened in our day. Teaching tales, those Sunday school type stories that have a message and are told with the intent to teach. And performance storytelling, stories told from the stage with the intent to entertain. The stories in Think Rather of Zebra are teaching tales. They were gathered with a purpose to reinforce the concepts in Dr. Ruby Payne's framework book. Their power is harnessed for a reason, just as the teaching tale has been used over the centuries as vehicles for learning. As we continue our discussion of these tales, you may wish to go to the AHA Process website. That's www.ahaprocess.com and purchase a copy of Dr. Payne's book, Framework for Understanding Poverty, and my book, Think Rather of Zebra, Dealing with Aspects of Poverty Through Story. In Think Rather of Zebra, you will find the stories I've shared today along with this story about the power of teaching tales. In the book, young Carlos looks up at Pete and asks him, how is it that you always have the right story to tell at just the right time? And Pete answers, that's an interesting question. Let me tell you a story. In town, when I was growing up, there was a man who had gotten himself crosswise with the law. He had been charged several times with some gun-related crimes and had to give all of his guns to the sheriff or go to jail. This fellow had been the best hunter in the area, always bringing in the biggest deer and the most ducks, you name it. So when he got his guns taken away, he decided to learn how to hunt with a bow and arrow. That man spent hours learning to shoot with a bow, and sure enough, after a few years, he had once again become the best hunter in the area and without ever having to shoot a gun. He was very cocky about his newfound skill, even claiming to be the best marksman with a bow and arrow since the time of the Comanche. One afternoon, he was out hunting and came over a little rise. There in front of him was a wooden shed. On the side of the shed were eight or ten targets, Dead center in the bullseye of each target was a single arrow. The hunter stared at those targets for a long time, realizing somewhere nearby was a marksman whose skill was even greater than his own. I've got to find out who shot those arrows, he said out loud. Surely he knows some secret I have yet to discover. If he were to share his secret with me, I could be even better with the bow. He set off to find the man who shot the arrows into those targets. He soon discovered it was not a man at all who had shot the arrows, but a young boy about Carlos's age and size. Carlos stared at Pete without blinking, hanging on each word of the story. The hunter walked with the boy around to the back of the shed and pointed to the targets. I need to know your secret. How is it that you were able to do this? It's really simple, the boy replied. I stood right back there on the road, and after aiming carefully, I shot each of those arrows. Then I came up to the shed and painted a target around the spot where each arrow hit. Carlos let out a deep breath. Pete smiled. You see, ever since I was a little boy, I love to listen to stories, he said. They're everywhere. They unfold around us each day. I just pay attention and wait for the good ones. When I hear one, I tell it over to myself and then put it away for safekeeping. Now I have so many... 
I can take just about any moment and paint a story around it. Until we meet again, I encourage you to think about the power of story in your life and see the world with a different stripe. Think rather of zebra.